Welcome to the Book Moth Podcast with me, Francesca Docker, where we discuss literary issues in today's academic landscape. Today, we will discuss how literature reveals food's unique power to drive or hinder social change, alongside its role as a product enmeshed in consumer culture, breeding desire and waste. I'm joined by Professor Andrew Warnes from the University of Leeds, who's published multiple books on the impact of food and foodscapes. Hello there, it's lovely to have you on today. The first thing I'd like to talk about is food and waste, because I think in modern society we are maybe more focused on our environmental impact. I believe it was the sociologist Sigmund Baumann who suggests that the standard for modern society is the dexterity and proficiency of garbage removal. So would you say that similarly in literature, we are seeing more of a correlation between food and waste in the way that, um, that, that we talk about consumer habits? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, one of the kind of most important books is Bauman's Own Wasted Lives. His idea in, in that book, which is a really readable book, it's not kind of dense sociology at all um, but he talks about the two stories of modern civilization and essentially there's the story of consumption but there's the story of waste so there's the story of advertising of supermarkets of web browsing of big stores on the edge of towns and so much of our culture is oriented to you know that kind of you know, kind of daily activity of shopping. But then he also talks about the untold story of where all that stuff goes, you know, and it's kind of, you know, so much of domestic modern life these days is actually about sorting that which we consume or want to consume. And, you know, uh, um, on the one hand, and on the other hand, kind of moving waste through kind of various stages. So, I think it's a really great book, uh, Bauman's Wasted Lives. And I think, you know, when I've taught it, we taught it in conjunction with things like Don DeLillo's um, Underworld, which is this kind of kaleidoscopic kind of New York novel um, that kind of is very alive to that invisible story, as well as the kind of acknowledged daily story of advertising and uh, consumption and lots of stuff in there about, you know, wastelands and... Um, uh, uh, refuse sites and but also you know often what students have done is in reading that and thinking about Bauman they've gone back to all sorts of things you know to Bleak House and the way there's that kind of panorama from the kind of Stuccoville plight inner suburbs the Nouveau Riche the rising bourgeoisie and the kind of Dockland areas where there's a similar kind of recycling of, of waste going on and um I think um, African-American literature, which is kind of in a, in a way where I began um, in my doctoral research many years ago, um, is also really alert to this. So, you know, a writer like Tony K. Bambara is a um, friend of Tony Morrison's writing about Bedford Stuyvesant and Harlem and Atlanta in the 60s and 70s. She's really kind of alert to you know, the way in which um, African-Americans are being kind of pushed into areas that are adjacent to sort of, you know, waste sites and, you know, they're, they're kind of on that that end of 
things. So there, sorry, this is a long answer. We we often talk about, um, you know, Martin Luther King's last big political campaign, the Memphis sanitation workers strike. So um, where he, you know, the, the I am a man signs. So actually has insisted on the recognition of the humanity of, of those who are working in those industries that um, the Western kind of cultures have preferred to forget. So I think literature kind of, it kind of gets, it, it beats Bauman to it. It kind of, you know, it, it's alert to the two stories, the hidden story and the surface story, um, you know, through a long tradition, really, if that made sense. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, and on, on that, you were talking about African-American literature um, and I suppose its relation to food. Now, you wrote a book in 2008 called um, Savage Barbecue, Race, Culture and the Invention of America's First Food. Um, how is our understanding of a word like barbecue warped by our Eurocentric perspective because I know it doesn't doesn't quite mean what we think it does yeah yeah I mean that in a way that that's what that book sort of turned out to be about really that um that there's a there's a bunch of words that are overheard or encountered in the first years of conquest when the Spanish are in the Caribbean words like hammock canoe uh chili um uh, and barbacoa um and you know it's a genocidal action um uh there's it's it's a it's an act of conquest and atrocity and what those particular words really mean or what the indigenous people of those areas think they mean is sort of you know less than secondary as a concern but even though they're kind of overheard they're written down and there's a load of kind of mythologization takes place there about what you know, a lot of guessing, a lot of fanciful suggestions about what those words really mean. In a way, they kind of get a bit kind of kind of they can become kind of concrete, you know. So there's this sort of idea that in the Caribbean there is smoke cookery and it's um, an, you know, an, an activity that is undertaken by the ind indigenous people and it creates this lineage that we can that kind of connects people who barbecue now to, to that you know that's why I use the word invention because I think you know clearly there was smoke cookery clearly there were or something it sounded a bit like barbacoa because it was encountered in various points um, and there was a use of beds to protect food from kind of insects and you know so, so there's a lot of really interesting kind of cultural practices going on but you know, they, there's a kind of very, very thin connecting thread between that and what we might think of as barbecue now. And it's a bit like canoe, you know, it's a bit like, you know, the canoa of the indigenous Caribbean was probably a really specific kind of um, uh, model of a boat. My knowledge of that isn't good enough, you know, to say what exactly that was, you know, but, you know, it was something very particular to that region but it just basically comes to mean something kind of rudimentary kind of boat that might be fashioned from local materials anywhere in the world and barbecue sort of taken on that so it sort of like becomes this kind of floating signifier you know so the eurocentrism of it is 
that old kind of vanity that European culture has these very particular kinds of boats and culinary practices that uh, are elaborate and um, uh, not replicatable around the world. And then the opposite of that, the other is this much, much more kind of open and undefined thing called uh, canoe called barbecue. So, so they were they were really interesting and really kind of um, uh, you know probably the smoke cookery going on in Cuba and Haiti uh, in 1492 was probably much more delicious than anything um, English people were knocking up at the time. But um, uh, you know the, the actual the idea that that one leads to what we now call barbecue is 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 kind of overblown. I think does that answer the question? Yeah, definitely. Um, I was even thinking to uh, a villanelle called Parsley. You may have heard of it, where um, some of the slaves said that they're asked to pronounce the word Parsley, and if they get it wrong, then um, they're killed because of it. Um, and I think that really um, shows how ignorant we were. And obviously, we'd be taking their words and misconstruing them um, on, I suppose, yeah culturally appropriating them um whereas we'd be very indignant that they pronounce our words correctly and i think it, it it was absolutely awful um what went on there um now you wrote an, another book after this called hunger overcome food and resistance in 20th century african-american literature um which again i found very interesting um, and you talk about this, the sort of the striking conjunction of hunger and labour productivity between African Americans. Um, how do you believe that this is kind of understood by authors, and um, you know how is it represented in literature? Yeah, um, this was this was my PhD originally. Um, and I think, like a lot of, like a lot of PhDs that I've actually since supervised, it began in a with a kind of some sort of general interest that there was something really interesting happening when African American writers wrote about food and hunger, and then it kind of you know distilled into a, a more kind of specific idea as I did the research, and where I got to with that was. Um, sort of just picking up on the fact some really different writers, so Zora Neale Hurston, Toni Morrison, Richard Wright, really different, each of them from each other, and not a lot of love lost between Wright and Hurston. But what they share, one thing that they share, is that when they write about hunger, you're never far away from an image of abundance, and you're never far away from a reference to labour. Um, so there's there's something which emerges there, which is about um, African-American literature showing us that African-Americans are experiencing hunger in amidst a world of plenty. Not only that, but they're experiencing hunger in the course of labour, which is producing that plenty. And that often becomes very polemical in Wright, in Wright's work and his autobiography, Black Boy. But it's 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 very apparent in Morrison and um, uh, Hurston too. I don't, I'm not. It's probably not unique, but I think it is distinctive, and I think it's um, 
you know, compared to kind of historical Irish experiences of hunger, where there kind of had to be a kind of a, a kind of concern. There, there was debate at the time about the causes of. It's kind of agreed now that you know the potato famine was the result of the monoculture that was imposed on Ireland by the British Empire, but um, that wasn't the consensus immediately in Ireland and Britain at the time. It took a while to sort of fight to get to that point. And I think there's something similar going on in the kind of felt experience of hunger among African-Americans that's kind of rendered in the writing that kind of quashes the idea that this is somehow a natural kind of Malthusian kind of, you know, uh, occurrence of um, of the cycle of the seasons or anything like that. So, and I think uh, it's certainly kind of something which animates Martin Luther King's way of writing about poverty as well. Yeah, um, yeah, it's obviously terrible and very tragic to see this and see see it portrayed in this way. But I also think it's very important that these issues are addressed in literature. Um, I know I, I went to New Delhi um, about a couple of years ago and there you saw people who were living out on the streets, had no money at all, and then right next to them was this huge shopping centre. Um, you know, it had all these really high designers um, there and very wealthy people were going in and it, it was just very strange and jarring to see that that polarity between the two. Um, mm. Yeah, so on that, the supermarket, I think this is an interesting foodscape because I suppose it's not really something that we've seen in the past. We've seen things like markets in, say, Dickens's work, and that's um, presented in, I, I think, quite an ameliorated portrayal of food and food vendors. Um, but now we, we have this quite sterile place where we go to get our food, and there's this huge abundance um, of food there. I was reading uh, Allen Ginsberg's A Supermarket in California and if you haven't read that I would urge you to go and read it because I think it's um, yeah it's it's very striking. Um, I think it, it really resonates with uh, with all of us as you know we all have to go to the supermarket at some point. Um, so do you believe that food selling today is positively represented like in Dickens's um, work um, or kind of has it has it changed quite yeah. a bit over time? Yeah, I think um, I really like the you know that word sterile that you're using about um, the supermarket, and I think it's absolutely right. You know, and it's it's kind of that very different sensory experience if you go to you know the market in Leeds, Kirkgate Market, the old Victorian covered market where. You know there is a unmistakable fish smell there's that lovely green grocer smell there's sometimes things probably particularly on a day like this a bit things getting a bit overripe and you know so it's all kind of coming at you um and so obviously you know one of the things that's really kind of um important about the supermarket but also so familiar we sometimes don't kind of we sometimes overlook it is how kind of rigidly controlled the the senses so we might be allowed to smell a bit of fruit and veg smell. We might be allowed to smell a bit of bread baking, which might be pumped in, you know, who knows. But, you know, you certainly, if you smell 
a fish smell or a meat smell. It would be like a kind of, oh, something's gone wrong here. We don't trust this, this food system. So the sterility and the uniformity of the supermarket really, um, you know, I think um, in the American, you know, the American writers who first kind of encounter the supermarket and respond to it in the 50s are kind of reacting to some extent to that kind of sense that you know, this is a place that's kind of perhaps going too far in the kind of modern kind of control of, of food there's something a bit unnatural about it or maybe it's just a kind of good old-fashioned american puritanism kicking in when they see the abundance it's all a bit too much in that weird sort of divided self that we see so often in american writing in great great gatsby you know that's sort all of, look at this it's amazing but it's also it's too much it's awful you know so recoiling but kind of also being full of wonder you know um so you get that quite i think you get that quite a bit in ginsburg's uh poem um it's kind of mock epic isn't it you know it's sort of like the sort of fleet ditch kind of you know odyssey through this kind of everyday kind of place but i think some of the wonder in that is sincere isn't it you know some of the what he says what peaches and what penumbras you know he's not i don't think he's sneering completely sort of up for debate i guess i mean i don't know frank what did you think did you think it was kind of acidic in its depiction of the supermarket um, yeah i i i suppose so i think um when he invokes like what Whitman uh, going around the supermarket, I almost thought that that was slightly satirical um, in a way, and it was almost like showing him, like I was saying, how sterile the supermarket had become, and it was almost like there's almost no poetry in this anymore. That, 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 that's how I interpreted it, and by poetry I mean kind of beauty, which I suppose is um, <laughs> it's debatable, but like the more classical sense of what poetry is, like as though um, that had all kind of been lost in this um, very manufactured environment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, then it was, absolutely, I completely agree. I think satire is absolutely right, you know, and um, there's a lot of nostalgia there, isn't there, and invoking Whitman. But, you know, the other way is, you know, thinking about the African-American tradition, to sort of look at these kind of mountains of food and the kind of apparent accessibility of it and to say oh it's awful is quite privileged isn't it you know someone who's kind of ever undergone hunger is perhaps less likely to have that that response so um yeah i think um uh there's, I think Don DeLillo again is really interesting on the supermarket and really quite kind of um, admiring of its sort of of its sort of brush aesthetic. Um, uh, I think um, I could probably talk for too long about <laughs> representations of the supermarket, but um, uh, so so I'll try to shut up. But um, I think there's also something about community in um, storytelling that, you know, the supermarket is a place people bump into each other. And it sort of says something about how community has kind of been lost, but is still kind of, you can still kind of revive it in this sort of non-space of, of the supermarket and that 
I think kind of begins with sort of double indemnity and and um, Stepford Wives, but you you it's almost become kind of like a mainstay of American TV and film now. Um, so I think that's kind of um, that that's not it's not offering a criticism of the supermarket so much as the world outside the supermarket. There maybe I'm not sure. Yeah, potentially. Um, I think um, I interpreted it as more like. I suppose maybe this is just my opinion prior to that, but the exploitation that goes on for the food to be in the supermarket in the first place, because it doesn't just suddenly arrive on the shelves. And yes, I, I believe that we're in a very privileged position and we should totally, you know, we should be thankful for that. Um, but at the same time, I think this mass production, which is going on, um, it doesn't just appear if you know what I mean, and I think um, whether that's exploiting human beings or the environment um, to get to that end product. Um, yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I don't know what your thoughts are on kind of yeah. the exploitation, I suppose, in, in that that sort of thing. Yeah, industry. I mean, yeah, yeah. I think, um, I think that the, the, um, uh, the American critic Frederick Jameson, the, the, the Marxist, critic talks at one point in one of his books about Walmart being a negative utopia um, and it's it's kind of a bit like people are saying now you know just imagine if Jeffrey Jeff Bezos kind of used all his money to you know get get coronavirus vaccines out to the rest to, to the rest of the world you know so if you imagine what if Walmart actually kind of dedicated itself to kind of you know, a kind of socialist kind of opening up of food access to to all Americans. It would be, you know, so it's kind of like this negative utopia. And I think that's, I think that's a kind of an interesting one because I think it's just can be a little bit too easy to call to for, for I'm thinking of academics here at Leeds and elsewhere. Um, can be a little bit too easy for them to sort of cast the supermarket as the villain of the piece. Um, and when you look at the waste and the kind of reliance on sugar, um, employment practices, but, you know, perhaps waste in particular supermarkets, it's it's definitely not, you know, an unequivocal force for the good. But there is also something about just the scale and efficiency of the supermarket that can just kind of get food of a unprecedented quality and quantity to people that, you know, I think Jameson sort of suggests there's a potential there that actually if that was guided not by capitalist principles, but guided by environmental care, care for bodily health, um, care for food access, food security, food, food justice, that it be, starts to look like a kind of, you know, it, it could become a force for the good, you know. So I think there's some of the kind of reflexes in that kind of American Puritanism, maybe a kind of egotism about wanting to be individual and not wanting to be part of this food machine. You know, you want to have the gourmet, the, the heirloom stuff that gets a bit mixed up with the eco-criticism of the supermarket. And actually, you know, it's quite difficult to imagine um, uh, a way of feeding the world's population in the future that wouldn't involve the supermarket 
kind of machinery. It just needs to be reformed, really. So it's a kind of like communist vision of the supermarket <laughs> or something like that that we need, maybe. Yeah, I think I think it's more the mechanisms can be used for good, but I think it's just the way um, that it's employed, really, and who who has access to it. Um, and I, I definitely agree on that because I think a lot of problems could be solved if we did have the technology and the capacity um, to be able to use this for good and to be able to give it um, to these people who are, you know, in dire poverty and, you know, need these resources. Um, yeah, and I think um, on that, it really reminded me um, of your novel, um, American Tantalus. Um, and this is analysing the word tantalising in discourses. Um, and I feel as though food and some of these more revolutionary ideas like you were talking about with food production, they are very tantalising because it's something that we're, um, you know, we're always sort of aiming towards, but we can never, never quite um, reach at them. So, like, how how do you believe that food and um, I suppose on that food production is tantalising for us? Yeah, um, I think. Um, uh, in a way, this is the this is the kind of thing that I I, I want to get into um, in the next as a kind of step away from being the interim head, and you know we've had the whole pandemic kind of situation. Just actually getting back into some research and back into some teaching. Um, I, I want to think about um, sugar and um, tantalisation a bit more. Um, uh, kind of one of the kind of great books for American studies scholars of my generation that you know you just meet people get chat and it turns out everyone loves it is uh, Sidney Mintz's Sweetness and Power which gives a kind of parallel kind of history of the production of sugar and the lives of slaves and uh, later of sharecroppers in the 19th century and of the factory workers who kind of you know, become increasingly reliant on sugar um, as the uh, century wears on. So that kind of English working class thing of, um, you know, people having kind of, you know, 10 sugars in their tea, um, which I think has kind of completely died out now. But I remember kind of encountering it. It's a kind of supplement. It's giving you the energy, but, you know, it's what your body's wanting, but it's not obviously an alternative for a nutritious diet um and i think that's that's a real inspirational book for for me and many others i think there's the, the, i'm really interested in how um sugar-based foods kind of leave people feeling kind of slightly sick but hungry you know and they don't deliver satisfaction and that feels like a kind of tantalizing effect that people are reaching and and um and kind of shoving it all down their mouths but they're not actually kind of achieving um uh anything like satisfaction obviously i'm not talking about myself here i mean you know <laughs> you know i you know I, I mean i need to sort of be a bit careful that this doesn't turn into some sort of terrible heart-rending kind of autobiography about my relationship with doritos and um other vices but um uh yeah i think um uh how sugar acts upon the body is something that um i want to uh think about um i'm quite interested 
in um, the uh, advertising pioneer Walter Landor, who kind of really developed a lot of signature supermarket packaging in San Francisco in the 50s and 60s. And he really, he really kind of uses, he uses a kind of language of kind of, you know, the, the customer for him is a kind of uh, Stepford Wives kind of unthinking female housewife female housewife um uh and he's trying to entice them with kind of sugary a kind of imagery you know he's always talking about we've got to make everything really sweet in order to get that kind of grabbing kind of action and you know that sort of supermarket kind of reflex of you know having to kind of grab things put it in the trunk how that's in the first instance sort of activated by a kind of idea of sugariness is really interesting to me so uh so that's a bit of a meandering answer but you, i think i think these two ideas do dovetail tantalization and, and and sweetness sugar yeah um it's quite american dream like isn't it it's always um sort of wanting that next thing and having that quick release or that um you know that brief um transient achievement and then it's gone uh and yeah it's it, it it's very sort of interesting how it is sort of presented in those in in, in those kind of contexts and like like you're saying about grabbing and sort of wanting it uh, straight away and I think even with services like Amazon Prime you know you can click on something you get it the next day you don't have to wait for a week um, and I think people more and more were just wanting that that kind of quick release um, yeah. of things um. Briefly, yeah. you were mentioning there about about housewives, and th this is another another kind of uh, question that I wanted to, and a, a topic that I wanted to pick you up on. Um, in Hunger Overcome, uh, you were talking um, a bit about sort of how cooking is very much associated with females and with women, um, and in Plato, there is this degree of contempt. Um, for the decadence and um, sort of, I, I think he calls it a, a corrupt science um, that, um, you know, cooking is in a way. Um, now, how problematic is this sort of gendered element of culinary practices and should we be challenging this at all today? Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it's, um, uh, um, it's, it's very kind of, clear to me in the course of um i mean I, in some ways you to be a food studies scholar you're plowing a slightly lonely furrow and every now and then you bump into other food studies scholar scholars and you kind of find out they're slight feeling a little bit isolated and we're kind of marooned in all kinds of different departments you know i'm kind of I think it probably feels a little bit different in America, but it can feel a bit like that in in British academia. And um, most of those academics are are female. You know, the food studies scholars I have worked with, who I know, who work in literature and food studies, are overwhelmingly female. And I think when you look around, it's, it's, I don't think academic culture goes out of its way to recognise the cultural significance of what they're doing or of food and cooking um, themselves. So I think that the kind of gender kind of uh, assumptions around this field 
persist even in even in academia even now um and i think you know you, you see it everywhere you know that um it's it's so often dismissed as wallpaper in novels um and it's so often actually is wallpaper you know it actually is presented as something incidental in novels um or it always has to be a metaphor for something else that actually has meaning you know it is the other thing you see all the time and actually you know what what kind of good literature does what the literature that interests me does is it you know one thing it does is it it just settles into you know what is happening in the in the foodscape typically in the the, the woman's work of of preparing food of the kind of um you know Hurston talks about in their eyes watching God she talks about you know how um all women know the the problem of the meal that wants to be a failure and Janie is kind of um scolded by a bully of her husband you know um there's just an assumption this is what women do but it's all really um really really interesting and really um kind of unusual that Hurston is so attentive to that you know whereas you know that, that's what that scene persists doesn't it she's writing about Florida in the 1920s but you know on, up and down the country now there'll be all kinds of domestic <laughs> kind of horrendous situations being triggered by by this and the kind of gender assumptions um that kind of pervade cooking and eating so uh so i think yeah they, they definitely need to be challenged and i think um uh they also need to be understood and actually recognized you know the gendered history of domestic labor of cooking uh, cooking being something which is labor which is hard work but which is also or can be creative you know so that's that's a, a kind of a bit of a challenge as well that people need to confront but people need to start having those conversations perhaps a bit more than than sometimes they have in the past i think yeah and uh hopefully by listening to this podcast you'll be slightly more enlightened on certain culinary issues um but it's been great to have you on today um and it's been so interesting i think it's a area of literature which isn't really talked about a lot and it's been lovely uh bringing some of these issues to light so thank you you're welcome uh, thanks frankie and um yeah uh it's been good talking about these things Next week, I will be talking to Dr Peter Mackey from the University of St Andrews about Gaelic literature's influence on writing today.